Well, as I said earlier, we, we started this sermon series on James last Sunday. And, uh, and I want us to take just a quick recap of where we've been so far. Uh, James has five chapters, and we're focusing on a chapter each week. So last week we looked at chapter one. Today we're looking at chapter two. Next week, chapter three, and so on. And so, in, in fact, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. I would say that every Sunday, but especially during this, this series, because I want you to be reading James each week. I, I encouraged you as a next step last week to read through the whole book of James, and then each week read a, a chapter a week as well. And, uh, and I think it's important to actually have a, a Bible that you can write in, make notes, underline, and so forth. So uh, be sure and bring your Bible. Of course, you can look on the screen when we get it right. When we get it wrong, you can't look on the screen, so you need one of these. So uh, be sure and have your Bible with you. But uh, as I said last week, James is concerned about what true religion is, what it means to, to truly have this faith. James is about faith or belief in action. And we focused last week on chapter 1, verse 27, which says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the crux of true religion for James, or pure religion. This is James's thesis for this letter, the, the hinge on which this, this whole letter uh, hinges and it contains two parts. We talked about this last week, remember? We talked about how it has the horizontal part and the vertical part. The horizontal meaning we have been called to take care of widows and orphans, those who are the outsiders, those who are the least, those who are the lost, those who need our help. Uh, as Micah 6, 8, when we talked about what it meant to be a man of God, it was do justice. This is the part about doing justice, to take care of those who don't have a voice. This is the horizontal part, and it requires us to be involved in the world. But there's a second part of it as well, the up and down, the vertical part that says, also keep yourself pure before God. Make sure that your relationship with God is good, that you're, you're, you're keeping yourself holy before God. And that is so vital and important. And, and part of that relationship means that you almost back away at times from the world. And so it's this balance between knowing what, how to get involved in the world and knowing when to not be in the world. So that's, that's when, when Scripture talks about we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And, and how do we learn that balance? Well, we talked about that's the importance of discipleship, that process that we are being discipled, that we are intentionally listening to God and what He wants for us. And so... Now in chapter 2, and actually kind of throughout the rest of this letter, James is going to give us some of those barriers to true religion, those things that keep us from truly living out our faith. And in chapter 2, he lists two barriers to our faith. And the first is this partiality or favoritism. And he starts with this question in 2.1. He says this, My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? I think it's kind of a rhetorical question as he's asking it, uh, but I want us to read it together. Here we go. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? See, James is writing to a church that is dealing with real issues of, of poverty and of, of what it means to live out the faith and 
in the church, there were some who were wealthy and some who were poor. And, and unfortunately, they, they were having some issues with dealing with favoritism, showing those who are rich, giving them the best seat in the house, and those who are poor, ignoring them. And this is a terrible, terrible thing in the church. And James is deadly serious about this issue uh, as well. In fact, he says this, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is serious. This is a huge problem. This is a huge problem in our society. We see it played out over and over again in the world. How we treat one another matters. We should not judge people based on the fact that one person has more pieces of green paper than another person. That should not be the case. Uh, it is evil and it is wrong. And unfortunately, we see it in society, those with status and power, there's sometimes a different set of rules for them versus the rest of us. And that is wrong and it is evil and it should never take place in the church. But too often the church does the same thing. And, and I've been guilty as well that we cater to those who have status or wealth while ignoring the plight of the poor. You know, and, and pastors, sometimes we can, we can be tempted to, to, when we know someone has money, we want to get to know them, right? Because we hope maybe they'll give some of that money to, back to the church. And, and, and we treat them differently than others who don't have money, and, and that's a terrible evil. And we think, well, if they have money, then they'll give. But, you know, just because you have money does not mean that you are generous. Those two things are different. And, and so I know that just, in fact... Wealthy people, I think, tend to have a harder time giving. You have to really be intentional about cultivating that generosity. Uh, we do have wealthy people that are generous, but we have to be careful. Wealth doesn't translate to generosity. But we should not be about segmenting people and, and treating them differently based on what they have. Because showing partiality or favoritism destroys our community as believers. As followers of Christ... The playing field has been leveled for all of us. For all of us. Social distinctions have no place in discipleship, in being God's children. In fact, if you know the history of the Methodist movement and you know our founder, John Wesley, he was very concerned about the plight of those who had nothing. The plight of those who didn't have a voice. And he helped give them a voice and made them feel like they were actually worth something and had value. In fact, he worked with coal miners and those who were in prison and, and helped those who were sick. And he brought them together and he put them in classes of people in the early church. And what was amazing is you could have someone of high status in England sitting right next to someone with no status. But in the church, they were all equal. There was no favoritism. And that's what grew the church. That's what kept, uh, that's what revived the church in England was because of this understanding that we are all a community of faith. We are all children of God. That's so important. James here also is writing to help us have a correct view of who God is. Because if we have a wrong view of who God is, then we tend to look at people wrongly as well. Having a proper understanding of the characteristics of God, of our Heavenly Father, has huge implications. Understanding that God does not show 
favoritism helps us understand that we shouldn't show favoritism either. We serve a God that sees people as people, as his children. Everyone has been created in the image of God, all of us. And when we view people through a lens that reduces them to their material wealth or worth, then people become objects or a mean to an end. And so I asked the question this morning, where do we as a church need to repent for showing favoritism? That's not just a rhetorical question. That is something I want you to think about. But even more importantly, where do you need to repent in regards to showing partiality or favoritism? I want you to reflect on that this morning and, and throughout this week. In fact, I'll have Roman uh, post it, those questions on our Facebook to help remind us where are we showing favoritism? Where do we need to repent and stop that? But there's a second barrier to our faith as well that James speaks about. And in a, a sense, it, this is about the whole book of James. And it's this issue of faith or belief without works. And again, 2.14, he asks another question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can you put that slide up there? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? See, this was a barrier for the church that James is addressing. It's a huge barrier, I believe, for the Western church as well today. Again, let's say this verse together. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? If our faith doesn't produce action, then it is worthless. James says that that type of faith is dead. Verse 17. So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And the pressing question here for me is in these passages have to do with what is the meaning of the word faith? What is faith? And there are a couple of ways we can answer this question. For James, as he's writing, he's assuming that some people have one idea of what faith is. Uh, some are reading this letter that he's written to the church, and the, they understand faith just as an intellectual understanding, something we believe in our heads. But James is arguing that that type of definition of faith is not enough. To have true faith is to live it out. It is a call to action. It's not just a mental assent, but it requires something from us. And this is where it gets tricky. Because we ask ourselves, if someone mentally believes that Jesus is the Savior of the world, yet lives their life in a way contrary to how Jesus wants him or her to live, does that mean that person is really saved? It's a good question. Is salvation only a mental exercise, nothing more than an intellectual affirmation of certain truths, or does it require something more? And there have been libraries of books written on these questions right there. What, what is required? This is where some actually, when they're looking at James, uh, they, they see, some people have seen kind of a, a different contrast between the theology of Paul or, and the theology of James. Because we know Paul writes heavily about God's grace and that we are saved by grace. And here James is talking about 
action and works and how important works are in our salvation. And so who's right? They're both right. In fact, I would say that they're both arguing the same thing, but from different perspectives. For Paul, he's writing about grace because he needs the church to understand that it's not about who they are, about what they've done. It's about what God has done. For James, he's writing to a church that already understands that grace, but hasn't put that into action. So I believe they're, they're saying the same thing, but approaching it two different ways. Because here's what I want us to understand. There is no work that saves us. Only God's grace can save us. Works don't save us. However, they are evidence of our salvation. And in fact, James spends the rest of this chapter discussing this very point. Giving both scriptural and logical appeals to this fact. Our works are evidence of our salvation. We cannot have true faith, true religion without action of some kind. So hear this. Both our mental assent, Jesus is Lord, what we believe matters, and what we do matters. Both of those matter. In fact, one of the most chilling statements that James makes in this passage is in verse 19 of chapter 2. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble with terror. This is a chilling verse for me. Think about this. Even the demons believe in God. They have faith. Mental assent. That there is one God. Does that faith save them? No. This is a, a graphic depiction of the insufficiency of belief that is divorced from, from transformation, that is divorced from action. Demons have faith in God. They believe God is real. They believe that Jesus died and he rose from the dead. They, some of them actually saw it happen. Our faith, however, should motivate us to action. It should influence our behavior, our attitudes, our choices. Real faith in Jesus should be transformative. It should transform who we are and how we live. Demons genuinely believe in God. But that belief hasn't transformed them. Apart from transformation in Jesus, the fact is that they remain demonic in who they are. In fact, their belief in God is so strong that it says they tremble with terror before God. Here's the unfortunate truth. Many who claim to be Christians have demonic faith. Even less than demonic faith. At least the demons tremble in terror before God. Many who claim to be Christians treat God so flippantly or glibly that, that I wonder, do you even know what you're doing? Do you even know who you're calling upon? They don't even have the faith of demons. See, a huge barrier to faith in Jesus is this idea of easy faith. This, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. Because God and Jesus, when you read through, he never promises easy life. He promises us fulfillment. He promises us transformation. He promises us uh, everything that is good. But it's not easy. And it wasn't cheap. 
In fact, I want to read a couple of passages from Bonhoeffer's uh, book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he's talking, contrasting cheap grace or uh, easy faith or faith without action. He says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. In contrast, what he would call costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. I love that line. It's a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we are to have real faith, true religion, then we have to have an authentic, saving faith that understands the costliness of Jesus' grace. Real faith shows itself by, by true repentance, by changing the heart and mind and living for the kingdom of God. It is both faith and belief and action. It is transformative in our lives. That's my prayer for us as, as the church, that we would have a greater understanding of the cost of God's grace and a greater understanding of the kingdom of God and what we are living for to transform this world. Because the world out there, we've seen it this week, it's going to hell, isn't it? Quickly. And God has called us, the church, to offer something else to them. And if we, the church, aren't transformed, how are we going to help transform them? How are we going to give them hope? How, how do we give them something new to live for if we have not been transformed ourselves? If we're not living for that truth, the cost of His grace? Let us pray.